So first of all, I would like to extend my warm thanks to Dr. Mandy Turner for inviting me to share my new book with you. Uh, my gratitude also goes to Professor Nazmi Jube for being here as a discussant. And finally, thank you to the Kenyan Institute, to the Education Workshop, and to the Dari Safna Shashibi Center for Culture and Literature to make this event possible. A book launch is usually meant to encourage the audience to purchase a given book. Today's event is actually mostly meant to encourage you to read my work. Uh, my editor from the University of California Press gave me the choice of a traditional print publication and a free e-publication. And I felt very strongly about the possibility of making this book available to readership that may not have easy access to libraries or the means to purchase this or other books, a situation that is particularly relevant for this region. That said, print copies are available and can be purchased online. Uh, many still prefer to hold a book in their hands and place it on their shelves. I'm one of those old-fashioned people. Um, finding Jerusalem, archaeology between science and ideology is the result of several decades of investment in this topic. It is based on my previous book, <coughs> co-authored survey book on the archaeology of Jerusalem from the origins to the Ottomans, which in turn was based on the knowledge I had gained from teaching the subject for nearly 50 years when I started writing this book. And my primary goal of both my teaching philosophy, at least at the time, and this first book, was to never touch upon facts and issues that could potentially be religiously or politically sensitive, uh, no easy task in particular, since I had many Israeli, Palestinian, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim students sitting in my classes. So what I came to learn over the years was that there was actually not much left I could teach or write about. Mm -hmm. Basically everything you can see and touch in the city is religiously and politically sensitive. So my new book, Finding Jerusalem, deals precisely with these very sensitive issues head on. In more concrete terms, my new book is not so much about examining the different archaeological layers, Jerusalem sites, building remains and the artifacts. My work is much more concerned with the archaeologists, professionals, scholars, institutions, and governmental agencies who and which are engaged in excavating and interpreting Jerusalem's past. It deals with those who support, control, and promote endeavors of cultural heritage. It examines the implications for individuals, communities, and nations affected by the processes of archaeological activity. And finally, it aspires to differentiate between the real, concrete, and material on the one hand, and the created, imagined, and perceived on the other. And my inquiry is organized or framed chronologically 
by four stages, beginning with the first currents of colonialist archaeology between 1850 and 1948, leading to a phase of nationalist or neo-colonial archaeology from 1948 to 1967. The decades between 1967 and 1996, I understand according to this duality of archaeology and occupation, followed by the age of archaeology of occupation from 1996 to the present. The historical framework of colonialist archaeology begins with the first excavation conducted in the city by French numismatist <coughs> Philippe Soucy in 1850-51 and ends with the establishment the State of Israel in 1948. And this period of archaeological exploration is characterized by Palestine's colonial rule, transitioning from the last few decades of Ottoman rule to, uh, uh, through the full duration of the British mandate. And Throughout this period, most of the city's archaeological excavations were conducted by educated and privileged Westerners and proceeded without much participation and support of the indigenous population. And this is really the era that gave birth to the field of biblical archaeology and the image of the explorer holding a spade in one hand and the Bible in the other. And this very close relationship between religious belief and political ambition in the realm of Ottoman period explorations was brilliantly described by Seal Neil Silverman as digging for God and country, a combination that in fact continued to shape archaeological work throughout the Mandate period, although characterized by a more regulated and sophisticated practice. Uh, then between 1948 and 1967, the period defined by its nationalist or neo-colonial archaeology, the city of Jerusalem was divided West Jerusalem governed by Israel and East Jerusalem under Jordanian rule, as you all know, and which may or may not be a surprise to you is that archaeological governance and <coughs> procedure, despite the political and administrative transformation, changed actually very relatively little during these years. Formally, the Department of Archaeology in Jordan remained in the hands of a British archaeologist, and the Department of Archaeology and Museums, the Israel Department of Archaeology and Museums, was directed and staffed primarily by Jewish archaeologists. And conceptually, the field of biblical archaeology continued to be the main focus of exploration with the original, almost exclusive Catholic and Protestant angle, now officially joined on the Israeli side by Jewish perspective and interest. And though both Israel and Jordan saw themselves as the rightful owners of the respective land slots, and indeed as indigenous to the land, archaeological exploration continued to be shaped by Western institution models and rules, and fieldwork and research continued to be carried out primarily by individuals educated overseas. Archaeology and occupation begins in 1967 when Israel captured East Jerusalem and extended Jerusalem's <laughs> municipal boundaries to enclose areas and villages inhabited 
primarily by Palestinians. And since then, the Israel Department for Archaeology and Museums, as of 1919, the Israel Antiquities Authority, had administered all and executed most archaeological excavations and surveys in the city. What has probably not come as a surprise is that the majority of field projects have focused on the old city and its immediate surroundings located within the occupied sector of the city. But most significant for our inquiry here is that the massive archaeological projects in East Jerusalem have rather consistently gone hand in hand with Israel's occupation policies and initiatives, which includes the creation of Jewish settlements, Palestinian house demolitions, the establishment of national and archaeological parks, and all the associated tourist industry. Can you still hear me in the back? Can you still hear me in the back? So I, I, so maybe I sh should use Is this is this better? Yeah? Is this better or not necessary? Pardon me? It's not working. It's not working. It's working. It is working. It's on. Maybe I have to really touch yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god. Okay. decide if you want the air conditioning um, and the microphone or without the microphone and um, I just want you to to hear what I have to say. Okay, so Nadia Abdul-Hajj in her book, Facts on the Ground, which I assume many of you here have read, has shown that by exposing layers, by exposing layers and highlighting finds that are predominantly of relevance to the Jewish-slash-Israeli narrative of the city, in particular in East Jerusalem, archaeologists produce as if tangible proofs of Israel's entitlement to return to its ancestral homeland. Despite repeated efforts of the international community to promote peace negotiations in the city, uh, in, in the region, I'm thinking here of the Oslo Accords of 1993-95 and the Camp David Summit of 2000, during the period following Benjamin Netanyahu's election as Israel's Prime Minister in 1996, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has reached new heights, fostering, unfortunately, radical religious and national movements. And equally unfortunate is that the final status negotiations of Jerusalem have remained, at least for the most part, off the table, but rather blatantly continued and coordinated investment in Jewish settlements, Palestinian house demolitions, archaeological sites, and tourist development in East Jerusalem indicate Israel's commitment to render the occupation an irreversible reality. And clearly, Kushner and Trump will be able to fix it all within no time. Um, structurally, the archaeology of occupation from 1996 to the present is defined by the Israel Nature and Parks Authority, the Israel Antiquities Authority, and an ad, uh, the Israeli settler NGO, you may know better under the name of the city of 
David Foundation, who in really very strong coordination and collaboration have determined the archaeological landscape of East Jerusalem. With the increasingly populated and built up areas of the old city and its immediate surroundings, limited areas have remained available for large-scale excavations. And thus, rather than creating facts on the ground, there has been a shift to producing facts below the ground. And one more point I should note at this occasion is that though Israel maintains that all excavations carried out in East Jerusalem since 1967 are salvage excavations, suggesting that they're carried out merely to protect or save an endangered site which was or is threatened to be damaged as a result of development work, it has become increasingly obvious that virtually all excavation efforts in the historic basin are directly or indirectly linked with Israel's occupation policy. Against the backdrop of this chronological and conceptual framework, I have organized my book in three parts, all of which are really dedicated to untangle the enmeshed complexity of a world-contested city's ancestry and heritage and counter of archaeology, signs, religion, and ideology. Cityscape and history are part of one of this book, lays out the dynamic, physical, and historical landscape of the study. And my historical overview establishes how the field of archaeology evolved from an individually conducted and supported activity, as at the time people were quite wealthy, those who were interested in the field. And here, the very first excavation, the very first site to be excavated by French scholars and noblemen, Félix de Saucy, in 1950-51. And so there has been this development towards um, an endeavor that, they, that became increasingly institutionalized, a field that is increasingly marked by professionalism, where archaeology is really at its very best when the zeal of the explorers converges with the ideology of the state. And what I'm showing you here is an architectural model of the Plan David Archaeology Building, which will cover an area of approximately 20,000 square meters, currently under construction on the Museum Hill. And it will, as you may know, house the new offices of the Israel Antiquities Authority, and really epitomizes the scope and power of nationally institutionalized archaeology of the state of Israel. And the second part of my book deals with various matters relevant to the broader discourse on cultural heritage in academia and also within the wider public sphere, and I look at both the progress we have made in our appreciation, knowledge, and treatment of antiquities and antiquity sites, and also the stagnation and problems, many and most of which are directly the result of the regional conflicts. And here, an example that illustrates both the progress 
and stagnation. When Theodor Herzl, the founder of political Zionism, visited Jerusalem in 1898, he was repelled by, and I'm quoting from his diary, the musty deposits of 2,000 years of inhumanity, intolerance, and foulness in the reeking alleys of the old city. And he vowed, uh, Theodor Herzl vowed, that the first thing the Zionists would do when they got control of Jerusalem would be to tear most of it down, building, and I'm quoting again, an airy, comfortable, properly sewered, new city around the holy places, unquote. And similarly, when East Jerusalem was at an old city were captured by Israel in 1967, David Ben-Gurion, then a member of Knesset, called for the demolition of the walls of Jerusalem because they were not Jewish and thus threatened to disrupt the visual continuity of Israeli control on both sides of them. Exactly 50 years after Ben-Gurion's suggestion to demolish Jerusalem's old city wall, the Israel Antiquities Authority identified the Ottoman fortifications as one of the city's, I'm quoting from their website, most important cultural heritage assets, unquote. Uh, and this is where we do see progress. The Jerusalem City Wall Conservation Project was launched in the year 2007. In addition, however, to conserving and stabilizing the original 16th century construction, the project also aims to highlight signs of significance to the history of the State of Israel. When the Haganah tried to break into the Jewish quarter in May of 1948, they damaged the ashlars surrounding the Zion Gate. And after the 1967 war, the Bootsgard Gate became one of the hallmarks of a united Jerusalem, a symbol that the Israel Antiquities Authority decided to preserve as and I'm quoting from their website, the single most important event to have left its stamp on the gate's facade in its 468-year history. A further point of interest in my study of the intersection of cultural heritage and politics is that we, we're dealing with a city that has valuable heritage below the ground and heritage that is no less valuable above the ground. And this brings me to the topic of destruction and preservation. And here, once again, we can see that there has been a certain degree of progress, but also some stagnation and even worsening of the situation. Uh, we all know about the radical destruction of cultural heritage in 1967, when the Moroccan border was bulldozed to create the plaza to accommodate Jewish worshippers. The good news is that the archaeologists recently in charge of the Israel Antiquities Authority excavation report near the Western Wall have documented all archaeological layers relevant to Jerusalem's ancient and more recent historical layers, including the Islamic heritage and even the 1967 destruction layers very conscientious and meticulous work indeed. The bad news is the Western Wall Heritage Foundation's plan 
in accordance with Israel Antiquities Authority, of course, to build the multi-story Beit Khaliba building on top of the most recent excavations carried out just across the plaza. And this brings us to the question of display and presentation. Whereas we do see progress in the way archaeological excavation and documentation is carried out, the public display and presentation choices are still largely channeled to highlight specific periods of interest and thus to project a certain narrative of the city's past. Here, the example of the burnt house in the Jewish border, and here the recent 2013 exhibit entitled Herod the Great, the King's Final Journey, the most expensive archaeological show the Israel Museum has organized to this day. And there is, of course, the role of education and the question of learning, teaching, and the process of knowledge acquisition and distribution as it relates to archaeology or cultural heritage more generally. And whereas at the beginning of archaeological exploration in the Holy Land, much of the data produced was meant to be exported with a goal to educate the appreciative Western public, in more recent decades, the focus has shifted towards those who live in the city, or more precisely, the focus has shifted to all segments of Jewish society from the very young. Here, the example of this so-called archaeological tale at the Israel Museum. I've never understood why it's called an archaeological tale. It's really a Roman Byzantine synagogue, not a biblical tale. And here, the example of a more real world or more professional experience for older youth and young adults, uh, other than Israeli students, the Gibaki parking lot excavations also trained and educated some international volunteers. And this educational endeavor, known as the Temple Mount Siftic Project, is perhaps more inclusionist in terms of age. It's a lot of older people who enjoy coming and sifting through the debris. And obviously also looking at more legitimate centers of learning from the earliest institutions in the city, and I think we all recognize the door of this school to the most recently established centers of learning. Well, I'm not so sure about legitimate here, but certainly the most successful institution in terms of exposing archaeological narratives to vast audiences. And here a photograph of the now annual Archaeology of Jerusalem conference organized by the City of David's uh, Megadim Institute, which attracts about, at least last time I talked to uh, the, the director of the Megadim Institute, uh, some 1,500 attendees. And to some extent, all the matters I deal with in my book are directly or indirectly linked to the growing discourse on archaeological ethics. Here, the entrance hall leading to the new or not so new anymore archaeological wing of the Israel Museum. I think there's no need to describe Moshe Dayan's really very special relationship to the field and how he deployed army personnel and equipment to remove these statues from Ilan Bala in the 
Gaza Strip and then how his uh, widow uh, sold those to the Israel Museum, there are actually countless other shocking examples of how the most basic principles of what even the non-initiated would define as ethically questionable practices of archaeology. I chose to focus in my book on three specific aspects that deal with ethical transgressions in the realm of archaeological practice in Jerusalem. First, I examined current methods and policies of excavation, documentation, and preservation. And in this regard, I was interested, among others, how the recent tunnel excavations fit into the larger picture of methodological progress exemplified by the use of stratigraphic methods introduced more than 100 years ago, replacing the original tunnel excavations used by individuals such as uh, Sir Charles Warren. And second, I, I also looked at how ethical questions pertain to commercial aspects of antiquities. According to a law implemented in 1978, the trading of antiquities in Israel is legal, as you probably all know. A situation which, according to many, encourages the illegal excavation and looting of antiquities. And this flourishing business, stimulated by really very frequent, sensational Jewish and Christian discoveries and artifacts, not only boosts the tourist industry, but also has significant ideological consequences. And finally, um, further initiatives raising ethical concerns are the excavation, potential desecration, and reburial of human remains in Jerusalem, which have led to heated debates, repeated protests, and occasional violence. And hostilities between archaeologists and ultra-Orthodox Jewish groups led the Israeli government to issue new legal directives severely restricting the scientific study of human bones. Some bones and burials, however, are handled by the government and the authorities in charge rather differently. The construction of a museum of tolerance by the Simon, Simon Wiesenthal Center over historic Muslim cemetery in Manila was approved by the Israeli authorities in uh, 2011. Some of you may have followed of this controversy. And this project has been broadly, broadly condemned for denying the religious cultural and historical impact of a site of significance to Muslims. Part three of my book deals with three highly contentious sites, or case studies if you wish, exploring how religious beliefs and ideological discourses impact archaeological excavation and interpretation, notwithstanding claims of scientific neutrality. The city of David, Ceylon, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and the Temple Mount to the Haram al-Sharif. And my primary aim with these three case studies is to differentiate between facts and fiction between what archaeology is able to establish, what remains controversial even among specialists, 
and how the results and interpretations have been used and manipulated for political and religious agendas. So my hope is that with this brief su summary of my book is that I've given you some taste of my work and sparked your curiosity to find out more about how a field that has made really enormous progress, that has become progressively more scientific, methodological, and professional, has also become increasingly compromised and manipulated by ideology, and most importantly, how there's this seemingly, these seemingly two opposing forces or factors are in fact interdependent and reinforce each other. I thank you for your attention and your interest, I hope, and I will hand over to Thank you very much. Uh, I will try without the mic, and I think I can speak loudly. Two weeks ago, I took my students to visit the ancient Jericho, the famous Park. It was 45 degree boiling. It was 1 o'clock, moon time, and the poor students, 25 students, I thought they would be the only visitors on the site. But I found that three groups of tourists were at, at the same time there. Each group is about 50 people. And uh, I thought, what is architecture? What are these people doing now on this side, coming from Europe or from Japan, in order to see nothing in Tahrir Sultan except a clumsy stony tower? Is this our function as archaeologists? to push the masses into archaeological sites, which we, as archaeologists, do not understand. And really, I didn't sleep that evening, thinking about what is the role of archaeology? Why do we need archaeology? What is the instrument that we are developing in this business? Is this mass production of the 21st century? Is this business behind us? Is that the people who are uh, tour operators, sorry for the tour operators among us, the tour operators that we are serving, what are they really doing? I'm not sure that I managed to conclude or take a conclusion. But the same phenomenon I saw just last evening in Jerusalem, Eight o'clock in the evening, I was leaving my mother's house, which is just very close to the town gate outside the city wall, and I saw two buses of Israelis entering into Eir David, city of David, uh, the ancient Jerusalem site. At eight o'clock in the evening, entering there, I don't know what to do in this, uh, in this darkness. But anyway, Jerusalem became part of a huge business. Tourism, industry, as, as well as political business. I am sure that these two Israeli groups were driven by a certain Israeli association who are bringing them to Jerusalem to educate them about the history of King David and King Solomon, and they will show them even where, where David was, was sitting and where David was standing and walking. Unfortunately, Jerusalem cannot be freed from the misuse of archaeology for political purposes. I'm sure in the past it was the same, and in the future it will continue to be instrumentalized for political 
uh, for biblical uh, reasons. Um, you know, I don't know any issue in the archaeology of Jerusalem that is not contested. I can't really, after studying, teaching the history of Jerusalem, I don't know how many years, 25, 30 years, I still cannot write the history of Jerusalem. I still, whenever I read a book about the history or archaeology of Jerusalem, I come out with more questions than answers. Any issue, the walls of the city in any period is contested. The understanding of the different strata of the city is contested. Most of the inscriptions discovered in the city are contested. And still we think that we know the, the facts of the history of Jerusalem. You tackled very sensitive issue. Jerusalem itself is a sensitive issue. Anyone who touched Jerusalem will feel the sensitivity of Jerusalem. I'm not going to read to turn some critique on the book. But I will tell you that she wanted through minds in writing this book. I will concentrate on one mind, which is technology. <coughs> Terminologies. Okay? Um, maybe this is one of the most contested issues about Jerusalem. How to call each period in the history of the city? How to call each location in the city? There are so many names for the same location. There are so many narratives for the same location. Which one shall I select? And Galore went through that and tried at the beginning to give us an index about the terminologies that she thinks they are sensitive and she went in compromising these uh, terminologies. We saw one of them on the, uh, on the slide when she uh, showed us uh, 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 selected issues. She wrote Temple Mount slash Al Haram al Sharif. This approach is a compromise, you know, because we have two narratives. One is saying Al Haram al Sharif, and the other saying Temple Mount. The one is describing the history before 2000 years and the other describing the history in the last 14 years, 14 uh, centuries. So the researcher is really in a big problem. I will, I will select other technologies just to show, to show the problematic of it. Israel slash Palestine. What is that? What is Israel? What is Palestine? Other technology which was also clear to me, late Hellenistic, or, you write, you wrote it several times, late Hellenistic or Asmonian. Which one shall we use? Which, which German shall we use? Which is the most? I will I'll comment on, on that. <coughs> I will put uh, just a few quotations just to, uh, 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 to focus on the issue that I'm, I'm here. The Western World Plaza is in the the Western Wall Plaza in the Jewish Quarter, in page 130. The Western Wall Plaza in the Jewish Quarter was never part of the Jewish Quarter. <coughs> uh, but she's using uh, terminologies that people are using nowadays in the literature. The other, the other, uh, the other problem, I would say, on other relation. Under Hashemite rule, Jews were no longer able to enter East Jerusalem. Jews or Israelis? Israelis? Jews Israelis. Jews were allowed. But Israelis were not allowed. Jewish Israelis were not allowed. But Jews were allowed because the Hashemite kingdom did not recognize people according to religion. And with the passports, the religion was not there. So they could not. There was certificate of the access. When you were passing through the, 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 the Temple Mount, 
No, but that's Israelis. No, no. Chapter is a is a book in itself can be developed 
in a book in itself, I can I could see the tremendous effort that you put it. Um, luckily that we have now uh, a collection already uh, of books <coughs> written by Israelis, anti-Israelis alike, by Palestinians and non-Palestinians on the issue of critical archaeology, uh, revising our methodologies, revising our work, and uh, uh, trying to find a new way out to understand and to use archaeology. And I'm happy that maybe the terminology cultural heritage could minimize the effect of archaeology and seeing that the heritage is much more than archaeology. Just archaeology is just one element in a huge terminology uh, for cultural heritage. Uh, and uh, again, I, I think that uh, I don't want to present my understanding of the different of uh, the last hundred fifty years of archaeological work and uh, of how to define them. But I want to draw your attention to the year 1978, which is a very important date for me, and to understand the Israeli archaeology, which is campaign achievement, when Israel was recognized by the largest Arab country. And uh, that had tremendous effect on the relaxation of the Israeli archaeologists. And maybe, uh, maybe that was the beginning that a new, I would say, new generation of Israeli archaeology began to show their, uh, uh, their new methodology, including admiring, uh, recognizing the different strata in this country, and not only uh, 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 focusing on the Jewish part of the history of, the, of, the, of, of uh, Palestine in general, and Jerusalem in specific. Uh, that, I could say afterwards that more and more Israelis began to be involved in Byzantine period, Islamic period, and so on. The last comment, mm -hmm. uh, this is a challenge for all of us. Can we uh, find other terminology for, uh, for the religious dimension of the archaeology, sorry, biblical archaeology, Islamic archaeology? Uh, can we think of other terminologies to free archaeology from religion? I think this is a challenge. I don't have answers, but I think that it's worth thinking about. Thank you very much.